Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zani Minton-Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Coming up, you'll hear some of the highlights from the latest edition of The Economist. These are just a sample of our unrivaled global analysis, unpicking the stories behind the headlines. Here's one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store this week. Thanks, Zani. It's June the 20th, 2019. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US Editor. Coming up, our cover story in Europe this week. Boris Johnson is the favourite to become Britain's next Prime Minister. Cannot resist playing to the crowd. In today's ugly politics, that's an ominous prospect. Next, in our Asia and America cover story this week, America's future will be written in the two mega-states, California and Texas. For the past few decades, they've been heading in opposite political directions. The country can learn a lot from both of them. And finally, as humanity has got richer, animals' roles have changed. Pets have gained the upper paw over their so-called owners. First up, Britain is preparing for Boris Johnson. The Brexit monster, unleashed three years ago this weekend, has already devoured two British prime ministers. David Cameron surrendered hours after the referendum result was announced on June 24, 2016, Theresa May began confidently but soon found herself cornered. Conservative MPs have drawn up a short list of candidates to replace her as their leader and thus as Prime Minister. Party members will make a decision by the end of July. The overwhelming favourite among both MPs and activists is Boris Johnson. But which Boris Johnson? The former Foreign Secretary, who is looked on with a mixture of amusement and contempt in European capitals, has assumed different guises at different times. As Mayor of Liberal Cosmopolitan London in 2008-16, he preached the virtues of immigration and the single market. As a leading light in the Leave campaign, he effortlessly switched to criticising migration and warning of the dangers of Turkish membership of the European Union which he had previously advocated. Now, in his bid for the votes of right-wing Tory party members, he talks up the prospect of leaving the EU with no deal. Fuck business, if it gets in the way. And joking that women in burqas look like letterboxes. Depressingly, the contract is working. Despite valiant campaigns by more moderate candidates, Mr Johnson is the person to beat in the members' vote. Much less clear is how he would behave in office. As the Brexit saga drags on, Britain is growing ever more polarised. In a starkly divided country, which gallery would Mr Johnson choose to play to? The way in which the next Prime Minister is being selected does not make it any easier to guess what is in store. Rather than face a general election, the leader is picked by 160,000 paid-up Tory activists who long for Brexit more than almost anything else. A poll this week found that large majorities would leave the EU even if it did significant damage to the economy, broke apart the union with Scotland and Northern Ireland, or destroyed the Conservative Party itself. 
Candidates have not drawn up detailed manifestos. Mr Johnson in particular has been uncharacteristically shy, avoiding most chances to debate with other candidates or be quizzed by journalists. His lack of a guiding philosophy ought to be a weakness, but in these topsy-turvy times it has become central to his success. Because he is all but empty of political convictions, people use him as a repository for their own. Hardcore Brexiteers have seized on the idea that he will leave with no deal if the EU refuses to offer better terms by October 31st. Remainers whisper to themselves that surely he is a liberal at heart who would not do anything truly dangerous and might even call a second referendum in one of the gravity-defying acts of showmanship at which he excels. That his words mean almost nothing is taken by both sides as a sign that he might eventually do what they hope, regardless of what he has promised in the past. This is foolish, and reminiscent of the coalition that backed Donald Trump for president. Some believed Mr Trump's outlandish promises, a border wall with Mexico, a trade war with Canada, while others thought them part of an act not to be taken literally and went on to receive a nasty shock. This is not the only similarity between the two blonde bombshells, as well as narcissism, idleness and a willingness to take advantage of others, they share a flair for arguing that black is white and vice versa. Britain does not yet suffer from America's malaise in which supporters of different parties cannot even agree about basic facts, but a government led by Mr Johnson, who freely contradicts himself and makes being caught out into a great joke, would lead Britain further down that path. The best case for Mr Johnson is that he might use his skill as a salesman and his way with words to hawk the Brexit deal, or something much like it, to a Parliament that has three times rejected it. Mrs May fell 58 votes short on her final attempt. Both Labour and the Tories have since become much more scared of what Brexit is doing to their supporters, who are flocking to the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party, respectively. It is conceivable that Mr Johnson, freshly elected, popular in his party and as magnetic as Mrs May is wooden, might persuade enough MPs to change their minds. The idea of him choosing a referendum on the deal so as to break the logjam in Parliament, as this newspaper would like, is far-fetched. But then so much about him is. Alas, the case against Mr Johnson is more plausible. He is not a signpost, but a weather vane, and at the moment the winds in Britain are blowing in a dangerous direction. The sudden rise of the populist Brexit Party, which came first in last month's European election and now leads the polls with its promise of a no-deal exit, is terrifying the Tories, many of whom believe the only way to neutralise its insurgency is to ape it. Since long before the referendum, the Conservative Party has been slowly evolving into one whose supporters are bound more by cultural values than economic ones. Brexit has put rocket boosters on that trend. The next Tory leader will be under pressure to continue the metamorphosis of his party from a force for free markets into a right-wing populist outfit in the, ironically, European mould. Mr Johnson would be capable of engineering that transformation. Whether vain that he is, Mr Johnson would be unusually reliant on the people around him in 10 Downing Street and the Cabinet for ideas, guidance and direction. 
By contrast with Mr Trump, who resents advice and experts, Mr Johnson is happy to delegate and let others do the work, provided he gets the glory. And whereas most mainstream Republicans at first disowned Mr Trump, thus ruling themselves out of working for him, moderate Tories are flocking to Mr Johnson's banner in the hope of landing a plum job in his cabinet. Many of them recognised that a no-deal Brexit would be bad for Britain and thus most likely a disaster for the Conservative Party. If Mr Johnson ends up in power, it will fall to them to rein in his worst instincts. If they fail, it may not be long before the Brexit monster is chewing up and spitting out its third Prime Minister. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next, America's megastates present two different directions the country could take. In the cable news version of America, the president sits in the White House issuing commands that transform the nation. Life is not like that. In the real version of America, many of the biggest political choices are made not in Washington, but by the states, and by two of them in particular. Texas and California are the biggest, brashest, most important states in the Union, each equally convinced that it is the future. For the past few decades, they have been heading in opposite directions, creating an experiment that reveals whether America works better as a low-tax, low-regulation place in which government makes little provision for its citizens, Texas, or as a high-tax, highly regulated one in which it is the government's role to tackle problems such as climate change that might ordinarily be considered the job of federal government, California. Given the long-running political dysfunction in Washington, the results will determine what sort of country America becomes almost as much as the victor of the next presidential election will. That is partly a function of size. One in five Americans calls Texas or California home. By 2050, one in four will. Over the past 20 years, the two states have created a third of new jobs in America. Their economic heft rivals whole countries. Were they nations, Texas would be the tenth largest, ahead of Canada by GDP. California would be fifth right behind Germany. Texas and California are also already living America's demographic future. Hispanics are around 40% of the two states' populations, double the national average. Both states were early to become majority-minority. In California, non-whites have outnumbered whites since 2000, and in Texas since 2005. The rest of the country is not expected to reach this threshold until the middle of the century. California and Texas educate nearly a quarter of American children, 
many of them poor and non-native English speakers. Their proximity to Mexico, a country that both used to be a part of, means that as Washington procrastinates on updating America's immigration laws, they must live with the consequences. At first glance, the two states seem as different as a quinoa burger and beef brisket. California is a one-party state in which elected Republicans may soon need the kind of protection afforded to the bighorn sheep. In Texas, Republicans dominate the state legislature and all the statewide executive offices. No Democrat has won a statewide race there for more than 20 years. The last Democratic presidential candidate to do so was elected over 40 years ago. Texas has no state income tax. California's state income tax has a top rate of 13%, the highest in the union. Texas has loose environmental regulations. California is trying to use its economic might to force the rest of the country to adopt more stringent standards on carbon dioxide emissions. Texas lets its cities sprawl. California has restrictive planning laws. Take a closer look, though, and Texas looks more like a teenage California. The population of Texas has only recently reached the level California was at in the late 1980s. The Golden State was once a pro-sprawl, low-tax Republican state, too. Republicans in Austin who are feeling the first signs of political competition from Democrats in decades, have begun to focus their attention on the state's shortcomings, such as education. That matters because Texas's schools, like California's, perform poorly and its universities are nowhere near as good. In the Texas legislative session, which ended last month, politicians focused less on abortion and bathrooms for transgender people and instead increased funding for public schools. If more Texans manage to vote, they might encourage politicians to do something about the state's skimpy health care provision too. This might suggest that, as Texas grows up, it will become more Californian. But ideally, only to a degree, because California has not aged gracefully. It loses Americans each year, while Texas gains them. Though the state government has made huge strides, a decade ago it was broke, now it has a healthy surplus and an overflowing rainy day fund, the state has daunting social problems. Homelessness is just the most visible of them. Unemployment is persistently higher and incomes are more unequal in California than in the land of the ten-gallon hat. California thinks of itself as a progressive bastion, but it has the highest poverty rate of any state in America. That is partly because regulation makes it so hard to build new homes, pushing housing costs up. It will take more than Google investing $1 billion in Bay Area housing to fix that. Texas, meanwhile, lets its cities march outwards as far as they wish. In this limited respect at least, Texas is the more liberal state and California the more conservative one. Americans wanting to move to where housing is cheap, taxes low and work plentiful are voting with their U-Haul trucks and heading to Texas. Just now, 
Texas has more room than California to innovate and to strike a balance between small government and social support. In America's federal system, no single state is a national template, and yet each holds lessons for all the others. As America's largest oil producer, Texas is exceptional. By contrast, despite its faults, California remains a magnet for highly educated migrants and a formidable factory of talent and ideas, which is why it has produced Google, Facebook, Tesla, Uber and Netflix, and why, despite grumblings about creeping socialism, the big venture capital firms and Hollywood studios stay. America can learn from both of them. That is especially true when the federal government cannot legislate, which today means most of the time, because the ability of states to decide their own fate becomes correspondingly more important. It is possible to imagine a mashup of the two megastates that takes the best of both a freedom loving wish to keep government out of people's private lives, a place that is friendly to business and provides opportunities for people while also protecting the environment and funding education. California could steal Texas's expansive approach to house building. Texas could imitate California's investment in outstanding universities. Americans elsewhere might be less alarmed by demographic change if they visited great cities like Houston, LA and Dallas. Call this imagined place Texafornia. And finally, pet ownership is booming, but who really owns whom? There is a range of theories about how Homo sapiens came to rule the planet. Opposable thumbs, cranial size, altruism and cooking all played a part. But central to the naked ape's success was its ability to dominate other species. Bovids, equids and in particular canids were put to work by Homo sapiens, felids, always took a slightly different view of the matter, but were indulged for their rodent-catching talents. As humanity has got richer, animals' roles have changed. People need their services less than before. Fewer wolves and bandits meant less demand for dogs for protection. The internal combustion engine made horses redundant. Modern sanitation kept rats in check and made cats less useful. No longer necessities, domestic animals became luxuries. Pet keeping seems to kick in en masse when household incomes rise above roughly $5,000. It is booming. The trend is not a new one. Archaeologists have found 10,000-year-old graves in which dogs and people are buried together. Some cultures, such as in Scandinavia, where canines have long been both working dogs and companions, have kept pets for millennia. But these days, the pet-keeping urge has spread even to parts of the world which have no tradition of snuggling up on a comfy chair with a furry creature. In parts of Asia where people used to regard the best place for man's best friend as not the sofa but the stewing pot, along with some onions and a pinch of seasoning, and where cats were made into tonics, norms are changing fast. The South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, has a rescue dog, 
and the mayor of Seoul has promised to shut down dog butchers. China, where dogs were once rounded up and slaughtered on the ground that keeping pets was bourgeois, has gone mad for cutesy breeds like Pomeranians, whose wolfish ancestors would have swallowed them whole for elevenses. Traditionalists attending the annual dog meat festival in Guangxi now find themselves under attack by packs of snarling animal lovers. The pet business is growing even faster than pet numbers because people are spending more and more money on them. No longer are they food waste recyclers fed with the scraps that fall from their masters' tables. Pet food shelves groan with delicacies crafted to satisfy a range of appetites, including ice cream for dogs and food for pets that are old, diabetic or suffer from sensitive digestion. A number of internet services offer bespoke food tailored to the pet's individual tastes. In the business, this is called pet humanisation, the tendency of pet owners to treat their pets as part of the family. This is evident in the names given to dogs, which have evolved from Fido, Rex and Spot to, in America, Bella, Lucy and Max. It is evident in the growing market for pet clothing, pet grooming and pet hotels. It is evident in the demand for breeds such as the French Bulldog, which, tellingly, looks a bit like a human baby. People still assume that pets must be working for humanity in some way, perhaps making people healthier or less anxious. But the evidence for that is weak. Rather, new research suggests that canines have evolved those irresistible puppy-dog eyes precisely to manipulate human emotions. It has worked. The species that once enslaved others now toils to pay for the care of its pets, which lounge on the sofa, waiting to be taken to the grooming salon. Sentimental Americans often refer to themselves not as cat owners, but as the cat's mommy or daddy. South Koreans go one further, describing themselves as cat butlers, pandering to every feline whim. Watch a hapless dog walker trailing his hound, plastic bag in hand to pick up its mess, and you have to wonder, who's in charge now? That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radiooffer. Thanks for listening. I'm John Prado. This is The Economist. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.